Hello and Happy New Year from our first Culture Bunker of 2022, your weekend pop culture supplement. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Andrew Harrison. This week, we are delighted to welcome the blisteringly funny actor and comedian Omar Jalili with us to talk about stand-up in a post-lockdown world and much, much more. And in the week that the stunningly powerful and really moving Hillsborough drama Anne aired on ITV, we have the rightfully lauded writer Kevin Sampson with us too. How do you handle such a sensitive topic? And marking what would have been his 75th birthday, we've got Dame David Bowie's new old album, Toy, including two bonus discs of fun, plus what we think of the BBC's The Tourist, starring Jamie Dornan as a man with acute amnesia and a murky past. All this and more in today's Culture Bunker. Hello, welcome to the Culture Bunker. Sean, before we start, quick fire round on the big <laughs> stuff over Christmas. A very British scandal with the Duchess of Argyle. What did you think? I thought it was horrible rich people doing horrible rich things. What did you think? I thought I agree, absolutely. <laughs> they didn't come off very they well, came did off they? off very badly. Maybe it turned me into a communist. Don't look up, <laughs> a.k.a. a comment that represents climate change is coming. What did you think? Meryl Streep, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, I, w- I was thinking, well, this is going to be a flop, isn't it? All those star names. I loved it. I've watched it twice now. I made the sun watch it as well. I think it's fantastic. And any disaster, um, it, it, it could be applicable to, they're going to monetize it. They're going to do awful, you know, p- political with a big P things. Um, and everyone's going to die. I just thought it was incredible. Ask me about the book of Boba Fett. Go on. What about the book of Boba Fett, it's Andrew? really good. Really liked it. If you're an overgrown what man child I... like me. But yeah. Bo- Boba Fett, the, the character mm-hmm. who never says anything, uh, finally gets his own series and gets developed. The bounty hunter, the uh, infamously mm-hmm. the most evil and cool person in the uh, Star Wars universe. Turns out he's got sides to him. Turns out he's been on a bit of a journey. I was is rather this a moved. comic, is it? It's, it's a Disney Plus TV series. So basically, oh, okay, thank effectively you. No. a comic, yes. Oh, no, I see. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we've cleared that up. Let's get on. New Year's <laughs> felicitations to the first of our guests today. He posted a picture of himself on Twitter on January the 1st, naked but for an ironing board. Omar Jalili is an actor, an award-winning stand-up comedian, and a self-styled bald avuncular man, his words not ours. He's appeared in films as far-reaching as Mamma Mia, Gladiator, Sex and the City Turned Pirates of the Caribbean. He's had his own show on BBC One, co-starred with Whoopi Goldberg in the NBC sitcom Whoopi, and he's just about to embark on the second leg of his stand-up date on his Good Times tour. Hello, Omid. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. First up, what's with the ironing board? What's going on here? <laughs> well, I believe nude lives matter. And, uh, <laughs> and it's also a joke about how people who seem to post semi-nude pictures of themselves get a lot of followers. I have since <laughs> lost 370. <laughs> I do nude photo of, photos of myself up on both platforms, Instagram and, and Twitter. I've lost a total of 780 followers. Well, you know, you're weeding out the part-time fans there. I think. This, is, this is the right way to do it. You're on, it's, it's half time on your uh, your Good Times yes. tour. It's oranges and cups of tea time before you get in for the for the, for the the exciting next Beautifully put. I love they, that. Very nice. nice. Get a bit of a rub down, you know, but, you know uh, get a bit of a chat. Yeah, don't manager. push it, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I'm rinsing it. So what, what has it been like to get getting back to making people laugh in real life on the tour so far? Should we be offering comedy on prescription? I think it's it's been fantastic that, that you you see that we we've watched stuff digitally and people need to be out they need to be you know enjoying something in in a live setting physiologically has a different effect on you and, and people absolutely love it and it's been it's something I I can't take for granted anymore I have yeah. to say it's something that I I did take for granted and for 18 months I've pined for it, and now that it's happening, it's been it's been absolutely incredible. I have to say. We're going to talk uh, in more detail about uh, post lockdown comedy and uh, the next leg of your tour in in a bit. But before that, I mean, you are a you're a big fan of music yourself. You recently did a talk about the impact of eighties music and how, in the lyrics of Smooth Operator, Sade Adieu was actually singing about you personally. Tell us more about yes. this. How do you know that? How do you intuit this? <laughs> in the eighties, I was at a party and I was uh, I, I did lots of comedy dancing, and there was a girl. Uh, who was, uh, I was told she was half Nigerian and her name was Shade. Oh. And she was a bit older than me. And as well, she was, I think I was about 17 and she was about 23. She kept saying, this guy's hilarious. He's funny. And and she said, your moves are very smooth. So when <laughs> smooth operated, I just assumed she was singing about me. I still believe I met her. Now I remember, now I remember the face. I met her at a party. I don't think she was thinking about me, but I'm just saying that I've always thought the song was about me for some reason. 
you can put on the posters, uh, extremely funny, Sade adieu, officially, because you have it from the <laughs> exactly. horse's mouth. Correct me if I'm wrong, you're a big Chelsea fan, but also following Ipswich at the same time. Is this correct? Yes, I have been a Chelsea fan since I was five years old, but I've been living in Suffolk. And actually, I live in Ipswich, and mm. Ipswich is, is the... It, Ipswich was everyone's second team in the way Newcastle was everyone's second team in the mid-90s. The Ipswich team of the early 1980s, I can mention all the names of the players. I've even recognised them. Some some of them still live in the area, which is amazing. And uh, I went to the first three games of Ipswich, and they drew 2-2. First game was 2-2, second game 2-2, third game 2-2. So I showed up at the fourth game wearing a (laughs) 2-2. People started having a go at me and I realised the Ipswich fans didn't quite see the satirical side of my gag. You once paid 4,000% markup for Chelsea tickets. Is this true? You've really uh, got through my latest Twitter. Yes, um, Chelsea Football Club for the the game, the the semi-final League Cup game that was uh, in the programme. They they did a little profile piece on me. And and actually, that story was in the programme where... Some guests from Iran had showed up at my parents' house and they said, we're big football fans. Is there, is there a match? And my dad said, there's Stamford Bridge, which is down the road. They, they go, and it was like, I think it was halfway through the first half. They said, just, just go with Omid. Omid will translate. And I was six because he likes football. <laughs> he, he plays football in the playground with an apple core. Because what he used to kick around like an apple core <laughs> that was playing football. So we showed up and it was literally, I would say, the, the second half had started. And we can only get all the, the box office was closed. Then ticket sales because your tickets. And we said, yeah, how much is it? They, they went, how much you got? Because uh. that was that was in those <laughs> days. I think it was about if, if I remember, it was fifty or sixty p to get in. And these Iranian guests, they just took out pound. There were pound notes, five pound notes. They goes, oh, right, for the three of you, it's give us this. So we paid seven pounds each, which was amazingly r- ridiculous ripoff. And we went in. People were shouting, what time do you call this, Yasser? Because the, <laughs> the only Middle Eastern people they'd seen on television was Yasser Arafat, who was head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. <laughs> and these big, heavy-set Iranian men with handlebar moustaches walked in. What time do you call this, Yasser? Sit down. But then we just thought, that was brilliant. Let's go again. So uh, <laughs> I went back and, and I've never stopped going. There is a, a continuing a football theme to the show, isn't there? Mm. Because we have another guest, do we not, Sean? We certainly do. Kevin Sampson is the author of books such as Away Days and Powder, which were definitely not anything to do with his former job manager of super pop group The Farm. He was once also a writer for The Enemy, but more recently he's become a screenwriter and he's screenwriter of the powerful and gut-wrenching Hillsborough drama Anne, with Maxine Peake playing the lead role, which has been on this week. Hello, Kevin, and how are you? I am well, thanks. I'm in rude health. Thank you for having me on. Wonderful to hear it. Wonderful to hear you. We've just mentioned Anne, we'll talk about it very shortly, but simply, how has the reaction been to the programme? It has been staggering. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us were anticipating or prepared for anything like that. It has been an outpouring of um, emotion, anger, loads and loads of messages, you know, people that I have not been in touch with for literally for decades have uh, have tracked me down. So Mm -hmm. um, the response has been phenomenal. As you're probably aware, you know, we have the launch today of Hillsborough Law. So Mm -hmm. the timing could not have been better either, just in terms of, you know, of giving that a platform. Mm -hmm. And we'll be talking about that later. Um, Andrew's going to mention that. What's it like when something you've worked on for so long finally makes its appearance? It must feel surreal having lived it for a while. Yeah, I think I think the overriding sensation for me has just been relief because <laughs> as as you're both aware, you know, this was shot quite a few years ago mm. and we've had it um embargoed really. It's been on the back burner for for three years now, waiting for a broadcast slot mm. while the various trials and processes ran their course. So um, it was August, end of August when the last of the trials collapsed and you know, I've got to give credit to ITV here, you know, rather than just rush it out, you know, given mm. that I've been waiting for, for broadcast all that time. They looked for the most powerful and prominent slot that they could give it, which was, you know, the very, very top of the year. Mm. Traditionally, I think, you know, people are expecting something a little bit lighter. They're looking to to be spoon fed with their entertainment, really. So it was a, it was a brave piece of scheduling and it's worked for them. It, it's had a, you know, it's had a profound effect and reaction. 
Mm. Hillsborough is always going to be an emotive subject. It seems an understatement for me to say that. Um, but why drama instead of documentary, do you think? Why is drama more powerful in this instance? I think the the complementary um, with with this, mm. we, we did both. You know, mm-hmm. um, there was a, a documentary went out last night, a companion right, piece yeah. called The Real Anne. But with with drama, you can you, you have the ability to really get on, under somebody's skin and portray the collateral damage. You know, the gradual gnawing agony of of grief, and through that to see you know somebody actually you know have a have a, an emotional response, have, you know, for that anger to actually percolate into action mm. and see, see, you know, through the lens of Anne Williams, see the way that all those families and campaigners responded to the, the grief and injustice that they replaced them and, and did something about it. And there's something, you know, admirable about, about a group of people coming together in these circumstances and taking mm. on the big, you know, it, 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 it's quite a, an orthodox story in that respect about about you know the little people rising mm-hmm. up against bullies and mm-hmm. and eventually prevailing against them, and it seems strange to describe you know the drama that that you you've all just sat through as being uplifting, but I I, I truly believe it is you know it's inspirational, seeing that um, the strength of a mother's love to sustain what for her was a twenty four year campaign to get to the truth. And for the other families, you know, it's 33 years and running to actually be able to portray that over four nights and to, you know, allow the nation really to have a, a glimpse into the, you know, the, the real heroism of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just I think it was really, you know, important piece of work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Before we crack on, though, a tiny reminder. Remember, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more every day. We're still looking for good new music on The Culture Bunker. So if you can suggest something, you can do it via our Patreon page. We'll see what we can clear and play. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Our special guest today is our favourite British Iranian since Yasmin Laban, and he's better looking too. Uh, Omar Jalili's current stand-up tour is called Good Times. We love the optimism. He finished the first leg in London before Christmas. The second starts on January the 14th. He's travelling the length and breadth of the country from Aberdeen to Torquay and beyond. Uh, Omar, you were just saying like how good it was to be back with human beings in a room. Are you champing at the bit to get back into it? Yeah, I mean, the last show I did it was at the Hammersmith Apollo, and... Um... It was just when the Omicron thing had killed lots of shows. And I think mine was one of the last ones that went ahead. And I know there was a show on before and, and Apollo holds 3,600. And, and we were told that you'll be lucky hmm. if you get 800, 900 in. And um, I couldn't believe 2,500 people came. And I think that the first thing I said is, what a, what a time to be called Omid. And, uh, <laughs> And I'm glad I changed my surname to Jalili because it used to be Kron. And, <laughs> and it was amazing how everyone laughed. But then, then when I looked carefully at them, nobody was wearing masks. And, and I was mm. so overwhelmed by how many people were there. And every time I asked, so is everyone double vaxxed? There was just a kind of, yeah, there was, it wasn't that many people. Nobody was wearing a mask. And I, I realized afterwards, uh, it must have been inflated. There was a, there was an anti-vax march just before. Oh I God! Think all, I think they all just came to my show. <laughs> so it was it was an it was a it was a genuinely amazing experience to do it. And 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 now I was very sad because I thought we're going to have to cancel the rest of the tour. But amazingly, it is still going ahead. During the pandemic, I did do a couple of socially distance shows where everyone was wearing masks. And it didn't feel right. And I kept saying, this doesn't feel normal, does it? And they were going, no. And I said, look, for normality's sake, why don't we just pretend you're all ISIS hostages? And (laughs) and I'm like the head of a terrorist group who's just got to do a stand-up routine for the Christmas party. And, and, And we went for it. And I kept doing jokes and saying, who do I have to shoot to get a laugh around here? And And they loved it. It became really <laughs> normalised. We try. It's, it's like when we were doing Zoom gigs. I kind of didn't like it at first because everybody muted me, and I didn't realise. I didn't know there was in the early days. Didn't know there was a chat function, and everybody was saying, "Let's just because I was saying I'm going to mute you lot if you don't shut up." Because there were people kind of going, "Could you could you put the tea on, Jeffrey?" You know, in the background, it was really annoying me. And then I said, "I'm going to. I can't know how to mute you." And then on the chat, they said, "Let's just mute him." So 600 people <laughs> they muted me. And it was, they were, I could see they were laughing, 
the way I finished the Zoom gig, which I finished all my Zoom gigs, which I kind of miss now, is I took the computer to the toilet and I said, and here's the sound of my career. And I flushed the <laughs> toilet. And I actually miss that now that I can't finish like that. But it, but I have to say, everywhere I've gone, um, the audiences have been really, they've been up for it. They've been excited. And, you know, I, I'm beginning to realise why Harry Hill left medicine. He was a, Harry, Harry Hill was a doctor and he always says, I found people were healed more through through laughter than by pills. Mm. Because when he went round being funny with, with his patients, he, he said the ones who responded to humour usually got better. And I'd say, but that, there's an argument there. They're already on their way to getting better. Because, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, but I just thought that the better use of my time on this planet is to genuinely make people laugh, which is what he's done brilliantly. Mm. But to, the fact that he used to be you know, a GP is, is kind of extraordinary to me. And that's what he chose. So I'm beginning to see that, that the way people tweet after is, oh my God, I needed that. Actually, my pin tweet is Eddie Marzan, uh, the actor who said, I didn't even know I needed to laugh for two hours like that. I didn't realize mm. how much I needed it. And you realize with when you're, when you're with your family and we all have a laugh and when you're with other comedians, we, we laugh all the time, but a lot of people don't actually. And, and you realize that one belly laugh is apparently equivalent to 20 minutes of yoga. Hearing Kevin's, my, my wife's from the Wirral, and, and I, I love ah. hear, I love hearing Scouse, because they're, they're always so funny. All, all the Scouse families, because, you know, Ahmed's uh, funniness is legendary, and by legendary, <laughs> I mean it's a myth. They just make fun of me. But actually, a lot of people around the country don't have a laugh. So to see how people appreciate it, it's been just so wonderful. I'm sure it's a a pleasure for you to hear Jalili pronounced in a very, very broad Scouse accent. That's going to be an experience for the ears. All right, almost. Almost. They call me almost. Almost. In your material, is it hard to steer away from like doing COVID stuff and, you know, gags about trying to teach the kids long division when you can't remember it yourself and homeschooling? Because the the kind of the reservoir of of the COVID joke seems to be really kind of a bit dry now, doesn't it? We've all been through such a lot. I I don't know. I mean, look, I realised early on that people don't want certain gags because you because you, I was doing COVID very because you you know before we came on you because I'm done with all these COVID variants mm-hmm. I was doing jokes with dancing like I tell them I, I tell the audience if you laugh at anything silly I will dance and, <laughs> and I was doing it I was and I was dancing when there was no laughter I was doing jokes like you know what's next the bankers variant where it's pretty <laughs> bad but it clears after three working days hey <laughs> and there'd be no laughter I'd be dancing then I'd be doing things like what about I just had the Alan Titchmarsh variant, which is pretty mild. And when I got better, I was suddenly very attractive to women of a certain age, <laughs> which I thought were very funny. And then I got the Sean Bean variant, which means whatever part I played, the Russian, Arab or English, I still talked in a Yorkshire accent, which, I, which were funny gags. But nobody was in nobody had the stomach for COVID variant jokes when so many people have been affected by it. Yeah. So I did feel that people wanted to know. What is what your last eighteen months have been like? What have you been what have you been thinking about? So after I go through all the shared experiences, clapping for the NHS, you know stuff. How did we feel when Boris was in hospital with COVID? Then I talk about the things that I was uh, thinking about, which are very very specific to me, which is things like white privilege, things that how have people seen me in the because I was the first kind of Middle Eastern comedian in this country doing stand-up comedy and and then people tell me that I can't do accents right now and I said well, well hang on who, who who's they and who are the comedy police isn't it just white middle-class mm. middle-aged reviewers and I said I'm not having it anymore because I've been I've been the subject of so many microaggressions myself and even stuff that for example the word BAME B-A-M-E yeah. which is the politically correct acronym to describe someone like me coming from the Middle East where we invented mathematics, refrigeration, and language, I would have thought that we would have got two letters. I thought it was Black, Asian, and Middle Eastern, but it turns out it's Black, Asian, and minority ethnic. Mm. And then when I ask people, what's minority ethnic? And they, and they say, well, that's just everybody else, isn't it? And I said, so I'm like in a poundland bargain bucket <laughs> with, the, 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 with a billion Chinese and a billion Latinos. We did create running hot water while you lot were painting yourself blue and buggering, <laughs> buggering wild boar. And, and I have to say, even English people were laughing at that because it, 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 it is something that when we talk about white privilege, it really is the kind of, 
it's almost like a virus. It's like the most quiet of all the racism is it's stealth. Mm. No one notes the people who carry white privilege are not even aware of it. And even the people who, you know, are the recipients of it, they feel it, but they don't know where it comes from. Mm. So I, I talk about the, the things I've discovered and by and large, it's gone down extremely well amongst what is, I have to say, I mean, I've got a pretty multicultural audience when it's in London, but out in the, you know, if I travel outside of London, it's a major, I would say 97, 98% white English, yeah. British audience to come. And by and large, they've been absolutely fascinated. And, and I see, I don't talk about anything, anything political unless it's funny. I remember talking to Sean Locke about this, that Sean Locke was a very political, politically minded person, but he said, I would never use the comedy framework to stand on a soapbox unless I had a joke. I wouldn't do it. So so by and large, everything I've said has been well received because there's always a joke that I've never really done soapbox um, comedy. I don't like stand there with putting, you know, hold, you know making a, a fist and saying this is the way things are. Yeah. So in general, it's people have liked that kind of the, the lockdown reflections on that, which kind of are representative of what's going on in British society. Uh, related to what you just talked about there, I want to ask you about your acting roles because you have mentioned in the past that you often get kind of generic Middle East guy or even like generic not white guy as the role that's offered to you. Is that changing? I mean, we, we have sort of two contradictory things on the go at the moment that only people of this ethnicity or identity should play this role versus how about giving non-white people a shot at roles that aren't defined by ethnicity. So they're kind of pulling in two different directions, if you see what I mean. It, yes. Have you noticed it changing? Are you getting offered different stuff? It's a big discussion because it, it was people like me in the 90s who were complaining. Is Why is it someone like me? I'm born and raised here. All, all I can play is terrorist number three. Mm. And then things They could at changed. least give you terrorist number two. Yeah, at least, yeah. <laughs> well, even in The Mummy, I remember I remember doing The Mummy and, and uh, I did the audition and uh, the, the director said, can I give you some notes? And I, I said, are you kidding me? We've just, we've read three pages. I've had two lines. <laughs> you really want to give me notes? And I said, look, do you know what? Just forget it. Let me just, I'll do the character for you. Because what you've written in Hollywood is one dimensional. I can, with a bit of comedy, make this a two, two dimensional character. So it was people like me that, that, you know, piped up about it. But then even then, I'm Iranian and that character was an Egyptian uh, prison warden. So then I started championing my Arab friends saying, I shouldn't have even played that role because I'm not Egyptian. That should have gone to an Egyptian actor. And then I started playing Jewish roles. Like I, mm. I played uh, Fagan and Oliver. I played Reptevia in Fiddler on the Roof in Chichester. And even then I was, I kept saying, is it right? I'm not Jewish, but you want me to, because yeah, but you're Semitic. So I just assumed I have the Semitic yeah. look and I can give it that authenticity. But now I don't think anyone would let me play that role. Even even four years on, I kind of get that I was probably at the spearhead of all that. And I kind of regret it now because I haven't been offered an Arab role in years. And I kind of I kind of miss being an yes. Arab scumbag specialist. So, uh, but I miss it. But at the same time, I, I can understand it because if there is someone who can play the role better, the general rule, rule should be you should go to the authentic actors first because they should be playing it better. But if they, if you haven't found the right role uh, from that ethnicity, then you can look outside. And I think that's kind of what happened with me, with The Mummy. They did look at all the Arab actors first, and then they started bringing it out to Iranians and things. So I think that I was just lucky. They'd, they'd already seen 63 people for that role before I got it. So if, if that's the way it works, then I think it's okay. One thing that of yours that I really enjoyed was The Infidel. Uh, written yes. by David Baddiel, where you play a British Muslim. He's not a particularly observant guy. He, like, he listens to rock music and he drinks and stuff, but he has to put on a show being very observant because his daughter is yes. marrying a guy. He's got a very devout dad. And then you discover that you're adopted and you're actually Jewish. And you thought you were Mahmoud Nasir and your birth name was uh, Solly Shimshilovitz. Shimshil <laughs> it, it's, it's dead funny. It's incredibly funny. It's, but it's also so near the knuckle. I remember thinking like only Baddiel is going to be able to get away with this and only you are going to be able to get away with playing the role. Did, uh, uh, how, what was the reaction to that afterwards? I mean, you're not actually you're actually uh, Baha'i yourself, aren't you? You're neither yes. Muslim or anything else. Did you get stick from either community? Interestingly, no, I didn't. Because, uh, and even Badil said, if if you look at your character, you you are ethnically, I suppose, you're Jewish and mm. you look Jewish, but then you're raised as a Muslim and you you look like a Muslim. So <laughs> it, it was because D David Badil himself said he was beaten up twice. I think on the same day, once for being Jewish and once for being Pakistani. Because I think some <laughs> of the 
he got beaten up by two separate but he always gets beaten up and he gets beaten up for many reasons <laughs> but he said it was interesting that they thought and it's interesting when i first saw david Badil, i thought he was pakistani i just assumed yeah. he, he wasn't english but he sounded i thought oh, i like this guy he sounds like me i'm born and raised here and that's kind of how we became friends on the on uh, on the comedy circuit but I think David felt that it was something because I'm a Baha'i and, and David is a staunch atheist, but he said, look, if I, if I ever was going to listen to any religion, I like the Baha'i faith because the Baha'i faith says that, you know, God is one religion is, is basically one and mankind is one. So he liked the idea of all the religions being different chapters of the same book. And he says, if you look at Jews and Muslims, they're so the Semitic races were very similar. Sarah Silverman has a joke because Jews and Muslims both pushy. You know, so he wanted to draw out the similarities of the two cultures. And it was just ridiculous that there is even a Middle Eastern conflict between Arabs and Jews. So in that sense, no, I think a bit like you mentioned, Don't Look Up, um, where the, the point of that whole film is that climate change is serious and it's coming. So it actually doesn't matter if people like the film. I mean, I think it was a very funny film. So in America, I had some friends of mine who goes, ah, I kind of wished it to be funnier. And I say it doesn't matter because oh, I got some terrible reviews. I say it doesn't matter. The film is so well intentioned and it's so good. And those of us in the know understand that totally to get that right is impossible. Mm. So it kind of doesn't matter if, if if people like it or not. It's there, and it's 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 when people say, "Oh, insulate Britain." There's got to be a better way than stopping traffic. Well, they've done it. They've they've made something that is different to stopping traffic. This is for the globe. Everyone will see it. And I think it was the same with the infidel. The actual goal of making that film was, was to say mankind is one, religion is one, stop fighting. So it didn't even matter. And, and the biggest compliment we had was, was Robert De Niro bought the film from American release. Mm. It was at the uh, Tribeca Film Festival. And um, I remember him telling, telling me, because this film is absolutely hilarious. I always thought that after 9-11 there'd be some film about Muslims, but I didn't think it would be this funny and, and I was so happy to buy it and we're gonna we're gonna take it across America and I'm gonna get everyone to introduce it he got people like you know Sean Penn even introduced the film once so it, it, in the sense what it was trying to achieve was was more than I suppose whatever it was because the intention the intention was so strong and it was it when it was a comedy as well and I think as you were saying especially up with Anne when, when you see the whole Hillsborough 96 thing when it's done with drama and especially with what we were doing when it's done with drama and comedy, it's far more powerful. Obed's Good Times Tour starts again on the 14th of January. So go and get your jabs and uh, get out there. And we're going to talk about Anne in a minute. The four-part ICB drama Anne is one of the most devastating things I've ever watched on a screen of any size. Maxine Peake plays Anne Williams, whose son Kevin died at the Hillsborough disaster in Sheffield in April of 1989. He was 15 years old. The series traces Anne's 24-year journey to get new inquests and some form of justice for Kevin and the other 94 people, now 96 people, who died there. It also looks at the toll it takes on her life, her marriage and her health. I've never seen anything like it before. So before we talk to Kevin Sampson about it, here's a taster. It's the semi-final of the FA Cup. Be good. Yeah, I will. Have a great time. Three nil to the Reds. Barney Hatrick. You hear the first? It's isn't it? Saying there might be people dead there. Our Kev's there. If this was an accident, then it was man-made and it was avoidable. We need to find those witnesses and prove that Kevin could have been saved. He was still alive. I picked him up in my arms and that's when he opened his eyes. Your Kevin was alive when we left him. Steve, will you go on TV and say that? Yeah, and I'll tell him everything. This was not a case in which it would be right to order fresh inquests. There's no point in trying to fight these people because you can't beat them. My son and 95 Liverpool fans did not die in an accident. They were unlawfully killed. Kevin, did you know Anne Williams yourself? I spoke to Anne on many occasions. I, I, I wasn't part of her in a circle of campaigns, if you like. But I think in, in, in a way that was good, you know, from the, um, in terms of the writing process, uh, having that, that little bit of distance, you know, because one thing that I was really kind of conscious not to do was to make it like a, a hagiography. What you mm. need to do is, is, is 
to, you know, to show off a, a flawed human being, you know, who's driven to extraordinary lengths to establish the truth of what has happened to her son. But it is at huge cost, you know, to her own health, to her mental health, but to her family, I think significantly, you know, to her family, you have to have, a, you know, a well of sympathy for, for her daughter, Sarah, you know, who was nine years old on the day that her big brother died. But also to the older brother, Michael, you know, you really, you, you feel his silent grief throughout. It was important to me to, uh, you know, to, to depict that, you know, the, the cost, you know, the human cost. And above all, you know, have to um, make special mention of Stephen Walters, who who portrays Anne's husband, Steve. And that is a masterpiece in, in, in silent grief. It's the, it's the small moments, these tender moments where he has to start acknowledging that his marriage and his normality is slipping away from him. And he gradually retreats to his garden shed, which becomes a potent symbol of his growing isolation. Maxine Peake's performance is, is, is very it's, it's transfixing. When did she become attached to the film and uh, what were the conversations you had with her? The timeline takes us all the way back to Truth Day in 2012 um, when the Hillsborough Independent Panel revealed its findings and made inevitable the ordering of new inquests, which was what Anne's personal mission was, was to have new inquests so that she could get the correct cause of death put on, on Kevin's death certificate. Round about that time, I saw um, Maxine playing Hamlet on stage and was just blown away by it. I just thought she was, you know, she was so powerful. When I started having conversations with Simon Heath, who was the executive producer of World Productions, who made the drama, we were both of the same opinion. It was a short list of one. We just thought that this was something that Maxine was born to play. So there wasn't um, there wasn't a huge amount of advocacy or persuasion involved. We approached her agent who called her and she immediately said, yeah, the agent was actually saying to her, you know, do you want to read the script first? And she just said, no, no, I want to do this. I, you know, I'm in. And I think that's... Um, combination of you know who she is as a person you know her background the fact that she is politically active and and has been a campaigner herself across a number of causes you know um, at home in Bolton and across Greater Manchester it seemed to us like the right choice the obvious choice and she was on board from from day one. I thought I knew the story quite well but the drama format both makes it new because it renews the emotional impact of it, but also the details that you'd kind of buried or forgotten or that perhaps the kind of enormity of the things that were done to the survivors and the survivors' families, it kind of makes it new. As you're writing and researching this, did you discover or rediscover things that surprised you about the story? I mean, one of the things that stood out, quite a lot of people have been shocked to discover or rediscover that the original inquest ruled out any evidence after 3.15pm on the day Mm. as inadmissible, which presented anew just stuns you in putting down that 315 limit then it's ruled out you know any evidence being heard or looked at in terms of the response to the disaster both in terms of the policing on the day and the emergency response there were so many things that that shocked you to the core you know the the more that you were reading like you say some of which i knew and and perhaps you know had, had buried but the automatic and systematic taking of blood alcohol readings on all of the deceased, you know, including children in many cases, was appalling. I think, you know, the the sheer tragedy of how many actually could have been saved if the appropriate procedures had been carried out on the day, on the spot. One of the most painful scenes that we see in the drama is where Anne, who is obsessed by now, you know, she's so driven um, that she has become so immersed that she she's obsessed, and this is where you know the, the family is really starting to pay the price of that obsession. But she comes home and she's on a high, having had a consultation with uh, an ear, nose, and throat expert at uh, at a hospital in Liverpool, who has talked her through what the procedure is, the difference um, between various types of asphyxia, and how you treat it. And he basically, in, in crude terms, he says, you know, if if somebody with medical expertise, um, you're talking Boy Scout level um, yeah. uh, first aid, had a biro, the you know the the plastic of a biro, and made a small perforation just underneath the Adam's apple, 
that clears the passages and would have allowed oxygen to flow to the brain. And Kevin and, and, and 40 others would have survived, you know, if that basic treatment had been available on the day. And it wasn't. So, so many things, you know, so many things that, that you, uh, you learned during the process. Mm. But also, you know, the, the details of, you know, the, the personal details and those tender moments um, that you can only get really by sitting with your subjects family you know things just as simple as family nicknames for me the you know the most symbolically um, poignant thing was the chain you know um, Anne had given Kevin a, a, a neck chain yeah. the previous Christmas which he always wore and for me that that sort of came to symbolize that umbilical thread you know between mother yeah. and son which um it was just destroyed on the day, but she kept his chain and, and that helped her to keep her faith. Listeners might know, some might know that you were part of the end fanzine in Liverpool in the 80s, uh, which sort of captured the whole kind of scally football culture. And one of the reasons that I found it sort of like so emotionally tugging on me is that in part because I recognise that world, I recognise the haircuts and the jumpers mm-hmm. and the, the faces and things like that. Were you in, in, in a, as a little maybe side project trying to memorialise that 80s culture of football and show that it, it was actually about sort of joy and friendship and, and youth and, and not just about horror and violence, perhaps? Yeah, very, very much so. What's important to remember, you know, given that the, uh, you know, the FA Cup kicks off tonight, is yeah. that in that era, you know, in the in the seventies and eighties, that was the biggest football competition in the world. It had a global audience. Everybody loved the FA Cup, and to be part of it, you know, you wanted to go on. Every team wanted to go on the longest cup run that they possibly could, and to get to the semi final, you know, it was it was just it was a massive day out. I went myself, and mm. it was you know it was a beautiful sunny day, and you you set off, and it, it's that whole thing of. Of, of having a laugh, you, you know, you're full of the joys of spring. You've got the game as your focus, but it's about camaraderie. And going back to some of the details, you know, you see there was some, you know, there was far too many denim shirts and, and <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the jeans and trousers had a little bit too much volume to them. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember um, sitting with the director, Bruce Goodison, and saying, look, it's really important, you know, that these details are right. You know, Kevin was wearing Reebok classics. It would have been a big deal for him, like, you know, saving the paper round to, to, to get those white yes. Reebok classics. That was what everybody was wearing at the time. And, and you know, we, we, we have to honour that. Well, I think it's absolutely incredible. The only thing wrong with it is that that Mersey rail train in the 80s is way too clean. It would never have been <laughs> like that. In every other respect, it is 1,000% bang on and is on ITV Hub right now and you really have to watch it. As regular listeners know, we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite tune and as even more regular listeners know, we can't always clear them because the music business is living in the 17th century. Thank you very much. But we always add them to the giant, ongoing, rolling Culture Bunker playlist, which is on Spotify. There is a link at the top of the show notes. Omid Jalili, what have you brought in to add to our ever-expanding stockpile of musical amazingness? I've recently rediscovered a singer from mm-hmm. Brazil called Clara Nunes, mm-hmm. who I discovered during the 1982 World Cup because there was some <laughs> um, Brazilian Baha'is were staying with us and we were watching the Brazil-Russia game, which was one of the first games of the 82 World Cup mm-hmm. in Spain. They picked up on something that the Brazilian fans were singing and, and they started singing this song. I said, what's that song? And they were saying, it's Dia Dia by Clara Nunes. Oh, she's beautiful. She's a wonderful <laughs> singer. And I remember, I remember the tune, and I thought it was wonderful. And then, you know, then they never taught me. I didn't speak Portuguese. And I just, I just liked the tune. And then, about a year later, I remember watching a Brazil game. Oh, and also, we were watching the Brazil Italy game, and Brazil lost three two. And it was kind of the death of Brazil that that style of Brazilian football. Mm. And they started singing this song again as a kind of mournful thing. And it was when Brazil, the Brazil team, was called Brazil as a country was cool. And then. I, I thought I'd look up the song. I came across an album and I went, ah, oh, Clara Nunes. And we had some Brazilian neighbours who said, do you know she just died? And I went, no. And she was, it was a very tragic story. She's 40 years old and mm. she was very loved. It was their Diana, basically. I'm, right. I'm not, I wouldn't say exactly the same, but it was, she died. She, she got ill. I think she had cancer. She died pretty quickly and the whole country was in mourning. Okay. And I, I'm always moved by her voice. It's such a clear 
voice. And there's a bit where in the song where everyone sings, it's a chorus, la molly now, la 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 la. It's very beautiful. And um, it, it always rem- reminds me of the time of the 82 World Cup, but, but I've, I, I became obsessed with her when I was younger. And if I if there was an inter, if there was internet in the eighties, I would have googled her. But I got I got little I got very little information on her. But now I've right. seen pictures of her, and every April when it's her, her, you know, when it's the anniversary of her death, I always remember it on Twitter, and okay. and I get lots of traffic. Oh, so you're in Brazil. a proper fan. You're a proper fan. We'll put it on the playlist. Clara Nunez, Beautiful. Kevin Sampson. What have you chosen today, and why? So I have brought in. I'm I'm, I'm a fan of a composer called Ilan Eshkiri. Mm-hmm. And Ilan is what I think Americans like to call a polymath. And he's scored everything from movies, ballet, rombe, television, movies like uh, Stardust, you know, fittingly, because we're going to go go on to talk about David Bowie. We certainly um, Video games. Um, but I was actually, um, I became aware of him watching the David Attenborough documentaries so you know there was that beautiful score that accompanies you know the Attenborough nature documentaries a lot of those are scored mm-hmm. by but just before Christmas he and Katie Tunstall snuck out uh, an album called ah. Chasing the Chasing Wonders album yes. and just as a as a, a tribute to Anne and Kevin this week um, there's a there's a lovely track so the 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 album is you know it's no more than about 25 minutes long mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost sketches you know with Katie Tunstall's voice as an instrument uh, but there's a track called Little Hearts Big Skies which I think is uh, is beautiful and poignant and and just fitting for me this week wonderful we've put it on the playlist listeners you can hear it after you finish the podcast of course on our playlist right Toy is the sort of long-lost Bowie album which is released this weekend as a three-disc set featuring the album which had a slated 2001 release but was never actually out. Plus, there's two discs with extras and alternative versions. Fellow Bowie geeks will know that Toy was included on the Brilliant Adventure set which was out last November but not with the extras. It's in part a covers album so it's double impossible to clear but we'll add I Dig Everything to our playlist as you are now very well aware. This is the most meta release of 2022, probably, in my view. The year has only just begun, even. It's an unreleased album of reworkings, recorded around the millennium, and now officially released five years after his death. Time has gone sideways. Kevin, I'm going to start with you. I have a feeling you're a bit of a Bowie nut. What did you think of Toy? I love Toy. Like like many people of my generation, Bowie bounced into our front room in the <laughs> summer of 1969 mm. and I was mesmerised by him. I, mean, I can remember it was just before we broke up for the school summer holidays and everyone was talking about him in the playground. Mm. I remember my older brother and you know people who were a few years older than me talking about that as a, almost a sexual experience. For me, it was just like a, an alien had come down the chimney mm. and I was fascinated by him and immediately wanted to to hear more, you know, that was that was obviously the famous, you know, the Space Oddity performance. Yeah. All I could find was a Decca collection called the called the World of David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say I was a little bit disappointed. It didn't sound like the, you know, this spaceman stuff that we've been hearing. And it had tracks like like uh, the London Boys and the um, Karma Man, Let yes. Me Sleep Beside You, things like and they were, you know, they they were kind of folky and whimsical, I thought, you know, at that time. Hearing them uh, re-recorded now it, it, it's strange you know because they mm. were recorded in 2000 2001 i think they sound now how they should have sounded then they they they, they sound like you know it's like west coast psychedelia you know some of it um, sounds like it could have been on sergeant pepper it could have been recorded by the birds you know it's it i i just really 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 like it and i urge anyone who has got a uh, a bit of a yen for david bowie to to get stuck in mm. Andrew, to me, this features many of his regular musicians, so you know the sound of that time. It's musicians that have been on those late 90s and then noughts albums. Is he redressing the balance here? It feels like he's trying to validate this period from beyond the grave in a way. And this period, I do mean 2000. 
rather than the I don't know about trying to, trying to uh, validate it. I think it's a really poignant record mm. because songs about youth and uh, escape and excitement and digging everything when revisited from what we now know is a bit closer to the end of Bowie's life. Well, he wasn't actually that old at the time. He was 20 years before he died. They have they assume a special quality. Um, the London Boys, of course, was always a song about the emptiness of the groovy London scene. Uh, you think you're going to get to London and your life is going to transform. Mm, mm. And it does, but not in the way that you expect. And there's a, there is a real pathos to it. You know, Bowie famously, of course, played characters throughout his life. And there must be an element at which you ask yourself, am I a real person? Mm. Am I real? Or have I made myself into something plastic that both I and my audience play with? So I, I think it's really fascinating that, that in that dimension. Also, though, they are great recordings of great songs. And I dig everything is, is hilariously, um, you know, 1960s, the full wild optimism of the time. Can't help thinking about me. Well... There's a full Warholian stack of uh, self-meta going on there, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. which is, of course, the best kind of meta, self-meta. Mm. Um, and it's, it, but also, it's kind of, it is a really good 2000s Bowie album when he had that meaty band together again. Mm. And it's the time when he did Glastonbury, and it was mm-hmm. re-emerging yes, yeah. from the uh, less appreciated 1990s, shall we say? Mm. So um, I think it's great. I and mean, I, I think you've got to be of a certain persuasion to want uh, three additional CDs of alternate <laughs> recordings. That's fine. But they do have some gems on there. I'm usually fairly cynical about the alternative um, recordings, but they do have Lisa mm. Jane is on there. There's a yeah. Tibet version of Silly Boy Blue, which I think is probably mm-hmm. better than the toy version, the album. Omid, are you a Bowie nut? Did you manage to hear any of this? I loved it, and <laughs> I, I can't really add anything more other than my generation of people in their 50s. You kind of measure – your kudos is measured by how much you love Bowie. And all I can say is if you ever go on BBC iPlayer – just tap in dream dinner party where I've, I've, I've spliced in old interviews of uh, David Bowie ah. with Kenneth Williams, Mo Molam, Eartha Kitt <laughs> and, uh, and Muhammad Ali. And we have a dinner party together and it finishes with me singing Starman to David Bowie <laughs> and him laughing his head off. So that if, if you're, if you're interested in that kind of thing, just go mm. on BBC iPlayer and listen to that. It sounds like you've tapped into my dream world. Oh, maybe. Yes. <laughs> I feel like dream about, and you obviously are in that dinner party too. Oh, yeah. Kenneth Williams and the Dane, though, I'd like to be there. I'd happily clear the plates. Kenneth <laughs> Williams and Muhammad Ali together is, is a joy to be I'm Momo. I love that. That's absolutely yeah. brilliant. I mean, in some stages, this is him reinventing that Anthony Newley period. There's a lot of that time, whereas, um, Andrew's saying there's the mod period. We know there's a thread to mod and he's almost casting aside. I don't want that version of me. I want these versions and I need to rework this, you know, in order for me to move on and have that thread. And so odd hearing Black Star in some of the songs, the album sounds, all that sort of thing is this. You you get this decades long career, I think, and just hearing it. And some of that was just fairly mind blowing to me. And this this past and the future and the present all at the same time. I'm not really sure which one it is, but I was quite happy with that. That's because Bowie is a time machine. Just lastly, what does anyone think about the cover? Uh well, the cover, for listeners who don't know, is uh, basically it's it's a strange baby with the face of aged Bowie on it. Mm, uh, really with a really bad face. face over the top. And a really bad, but then that yeah, late period Bowie art was pretty weird, wasn't mm. it? I mean, that, that strange uh, puppet with the face of Bowie that was yes. prancing around in the Where Are We Now video. It's there to unsettle you. Finally, do you come from a land down under? Women glow and men can't remember a bloody thing about the mysterious past. It's The Tourist, BBC One's new six-part thriller, which stars Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades of Grey and The Fall, not the band. It also stars Line of Duty's Shalom Brune Franklin as Lucy and Dumplin star Danielle MacDonald as a rookie cop called Helen Chambers. Jamie Dornan's character, who has no name at first, finds himself in hospital in a small town in Australia. He can't remember anything. What on earth has happened? Let's listen to the trailer. Why would somebody want me dead? I'm looking for an Irishman. Are you sure you want to know who you really are? It's nine when the clock says ten. Let's go. You're awake. Sir, can you tell me your name? You've got, like, amnesia. Yeah. That is awesome! 
Kevin Sampson, I'm going to start with you. The first scene, we see Jamie being chased by a huge mega truck in the Australian outback. He doesn't seem surprised. He crashes, then he gets amnesia. What did you make of the setup now being a TV person yourself? I absolutely loved it. I, I, I love things like this. Mm. Uh, I think what they do is they give the audience what they want mm-hmm. rather than what might plausibly have happened. And in that first couple of minutes, there's uh, something of a homage to Jeepers Creepers, right down to the uh, slightly haunting use of uh, a guy in snakeskin boots whistling this this kind of childish refrain. Mm. Of course, you know, Jamie Dornan's character, the man with no name, sees this mega truck bearing down mm. on him with its horn blaring. Conveniently, they're the only two cars on the road. <laughs> um, it's the outback. So, Nothing happens. So, so Jamie pulls off the road and, and, and seems to cunningly throw him off the trail mm. while simultaneously being word perfect on Kim Khan's Betty Davis eyes. <laughs> You're right. Gets back onto a road. Punches the air with 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 absolute joy because he seems to have thrown the manic trucker off, mm. and of course you you just know that uh, he is going to be any second now blindsided <laughs> with one almighty crash, and it doesn't disappoint. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, he, he wakes up in hospital, and sort of memento style tries to piece together who he is and why somebody wants to kill him. Like I say, it, it, it's not something that you're following because. You think that this is any way kind of you know, the, the, the storytelling at times is, is just joyously absurd, <laughs> but it's yeah. so kind of hooky. And the, the the Williams brothers, you know, who are the guys mm, that created mm. Missing and Liar and uh, yeah. Relic and, and things, you know, this is what they do. They're absolute masters at it. And I have not got to the to the final episode yet, mm-hmm. so no spoilers, yeah. please. But all I can tell you is that by the end of that first episode. I was gagging for more. (laughs) That's wonderful. I could not have said that better myself. Andrew, this is um, also an ensemble piece. It's not just hunking Jamie Dornan on the screen. There's Danielle MacDonald, who plays this eccentric junior cop, whatever they're called in real life. What did you make of her and the other characters that surround the mystery man? I was not as bowled over as Kevin Mm -hmm. because I thought this was perhaps being swamped by its own quirks. I think that character in particular, the Helen Chambers, the Mm -hmm. trainee cop, maintains a sort of twitchy uh, I'm just a kooky kind of individual inverted commas around her personality and and behaviour through incidents that would reduce a a, a real human being to a gibbering wreck. Mm -hmm. Genuine horrors and shocks and and, 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 and violence and trauma. The producers here, obviously the Fleabag people, I found that stretch between what we were asked to buy as the drama and the way we were also asked to buy contemporary kookiness mm. just too far you're not having the uh, the cheese pockets seen as as a metaphor for the futility of life <laughs> i'm not actually i'm not and i, I have got to say i found the, the subplot of felon chambers and her uh, sebastian gorka look-alike fiance um <laughs> fantastically Gorka. irritating Ooh. his world of uh you know he's a, he's a controlling the fiance is a controlling figure who is basically dragooning helen through uh an australian yes, version this of is, this is going to be a pivot for the plot Andrew, this is going to propel more action later. You, you must do. It has to. I'm quite. I'm sort of three quarters of the way through it now, and it's propelled. It's propelled one or two things. But what this thing is completely lacking in is any economy of thought and action. Scenes are immensely baggy. Like I say, we're given a surfeit of quirk rather than either the propulsive nature that you ex- you require from a thriller, or if we're going to be watching a, a quirky personality drama, does it necessarily need to be riven with uh, conspiracy and uh, clues and so forth? That said, Ooh, I you think didn't some like your the- genre hopping, did you? I don't think it does. I, th- I think it doesn't mix them well. Right. That said, that a few of the little kind of turning points, a few of the little teeny tiny mm. clues on which major plot moments sent are very clever. Mm. Um, there's one that involves the Spice Girls, shall we say? <laughs> so, which I, so some of those things I quite liked, but I, I, I have to say, I found my patience with it wearing no. a little bit thin, and I was a bit like, "Will you get to the bloody point here?" It felt like an hour drama that had been uh, put on the medieval stretching rack and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and quirked up beyond uh, beyond certain yeah. certainly the tolerance of a carbuncular old sod like me. <laughs> Goodness me. Omid, oh, <laughs> I'm desperate to get to you. Does this produce provide even much-needed escapism for January? I was very happy to wait to see what you guys oh. thought because if you hated it, mm. I, would have, I would have said I loved it. Yeah. Now it seems that... Oh. 
Kevin and Sean, you love it. I'm going to say I absolutely hated it. <laughs> uh, I, I knew you were the, the right guy for the podcast. The, hey, just, I hated hey. it. I hated it. I, I, I had lots of reasons which I could easily say why I loved it, but I think Kevin, Kevin said that very beautifully. The reasons why I didn't like it is because, again, it's about tone. Mm. I mean, if you mm. look at Don't Look Up, where it got, yeah. to me, it got the tone right. Yeah. Here, there is supposed to be comedy in it. There is supposed to be suspense. Of course, it's a very interesting twist on an idea. Here's a character, and then we discover who he is. It's mm. kind of in the, in, in the opposite way. But I found I couldn't get into the comedy of it. I couldn't get into the tongue-in-cheek irony of it. I thought it was a little bit muddled and I did the, I, I know things like Ozark, Breaking Bad, they do stretch things, but then you're really into the drama of it so mm. much that it doesn't matter. Mm. You can hold, you don't want to take your eyes off the screen because if you take your eyes off, you've missed a, an eye movement that is extremely important. And here I didn't think it was important. I watched two episodes mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm with Andrew in the sense that I've found myself fast forwarding yeah. quickly yeah. to mm. see, to get on with the story because also, Jamie Dornan is an interesting. He's an interesting person. I liked him. I mm. love the fact there's someone who's Northern Irish, and mm. it was all. It seemed fresh and original. But if you don't buy into the, if you're not, if you're not into the hero, because we don't know him, you can't really root for him either way. I found the whole thing. I was ambivalent to the whole thing. I didn't really care. That's interesting because I was going to ask Kevin as a screenwriter, but I can ask everybody. Obviously, that is this Helen Chambers story. I actually thought that maybe we're going through her eyes, whereas I thought it was going to be Jamie Dornan's at the start because we know as little as he does. But then, does he know more? I think because she is the character that knows the least, it's through her, and then I could identify with that. And then that was my in. I agree, Maybe, but she, I don't think it really. It doesn't follow the action through her though. We, we, she's not our proxy. She pops up for various plot purposes oh, and also to, to further. I don't think a particularly captivating domestic story. You don't join scenes with her. You don't follow. You know, when, when a character is a proxy character, you expect them to be on screen most of the time, and you expect to discover things at their pace. And that's just simply not how this is structured. Mm. Uh, my big problem with it was I just felt mm. like it was several chunks of different dramas jammed together much as a little kid will take three different lego kits and make you something that's part spaceship mm. part pirates of the caribbean boat part um, microwave oven no i can i just say I, I i think what andrew has said is very indicative of new writers and new directors who have been brought up watching so much and it's a bit like how quentin tarantino mm-hmm. he's a student so he's chucked lots if you're a mm. student of film mm. you know he's taken this from that he's taken yeah. that from but somehow somehow he's put together something that is interesting and original enough for you to say, okay, that's Quentin Tarantino-esque. Here, it does feel like it's a bunch of people who've studied film. There's a very Coen Brothers sort of... Yeah, it's very it's very conscious. Adjacent. It's very, it's very self-conscious. Yeah. yeah. I do like I do like Danielle McDonald. I do like the, the she, police character. Yeah, I really She's like interesting. her. And I like, I have a real soft spot for bungling police, whether they yes. be the Agent Rogers character who is deeply eccentric and rings his wife every morning at 10 o'clock in the morning, just, you know, come what may, or it's her who's really trying to navigate how she's going to be... A, "Quote unquote proper policewoman." Um, that's something that I absolutely adore. So I'm I'm just in there straight. Um, Me too, Sean. Like Me too. Right. Well, there we <laughs> never go. Under, well. Never underestimate the allure of the bungling cop who comes good in the end. <laughs> that, that was in my notes in my Boris Johnson esque having a, a Brexiteer and Remain letter ready to go if I become prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do believe that 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 that, that character, the bumbling character, and actually I disagree with Andrew. I do, I like the fact that there's this. I thought was brilliant. He's a Sebastian Gorka esque husband. I thought mm. that was genius. Mm. That's very funny, and I and I love that there is that. That's when I stop fast forwarding. Though, what are these two doing? What is their subplot? And, and the fact he says things like, "Oh, you can be pretty again." <laughs> there are little lines like that. You think, okay, there's something interesting going yeah, on. Here. And I yeah, thought that, I thought I that was original. If they'd committed to that story, binned off the mystery in the desert, you would have had a superior yeah, version of the young doctors or possibly neighbours as well. You know, alongside things. I mean, Anne is amazing. And I would say, you know, again, I just want to repeat how devastating it is, but how fantastic. But then I also needed this by the, in the same token. I just thought it was fantastic escapism. To decompress. Well, finally, our rolling playlist also includes the greatest songs of all time, as chosen by our guests. Omid, what's your greatest song of all time and why? America, A Horse With No Name, 
only because I found out that was Osama bin Laden's favorite favorite song. <laughs> Uh, was it really? Uh, along with along with supporting Arsenal, these are little details that are coming out, <laughs> which is why I included it in my television show. Well, I played a, a gay Scottish film director who directs his uh, Bin Laden's video addresses, and he combines a horse with no name as a new uh, a video he's going to give to the world, a music video where he sings horse horse with no name, combined with a yet to be released uh, video he's made called Trick Shots with um, Bin Laden, which is his snooker DVD, where Bin Laden's doing (laughs) snooker trick shocks. And so we have a a video that's made with Bin Laden doing a trick shock while he's he's singing A Horse With No Name. It's the most original music video out there. So it's on my Instagram page. Go and look for it. I'll be going as soon as we finish recording. I'll be going to have a look at that. (laughs) Kevin Sampson, what are you choosing as the greatest record of all time to put into the Bunker Time Machine? It's Bowie week this week, Yay. so my, my my song of all time this week is Bowie's version of Wild is the Wind from Station to Station. It was written, the music was written by uh, Dmitry Chomkin, and given that Christmas is still a recent memory, <laughs> uh, he also wrote It's a Wonderful Life, amongst many other, you know, wonderful, wonderful film themes. So Wild is the Wind by David Bowie. And we'll drop them straight into the playlist for you. As America and Bowie go on the Bunker Cinematic Universe playlist, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we uncover another cadaver in the outback and reveal our true identities for perhaps the fourth or fifth time? Kevin. It could have been the sale of Bowie's catalogue <laughs> oh, yeah. for something like 175 million smackaroonies. <laughs> it could have been the announcement of two new Rebus books by the great mm-hmm. Ian Rankin. But ah. I can only talk about the sensation that is the new series of Cobra Kai. <laughs> I just love it. It's got it's got everything. In short, you know, Cobra Kai is the reboot of the Crassy Kid, as we all know, mm-hmm. and it plays variations on a theme of bullies will end up becoming bullies in adult life unless we do something to to mm. stop them. And in this latest manifestation of Cobra Kai. It's the return of the sinister Terry Silver, who uh, <laughs> joins forces. He's on Brookside, wasn't he? Oh, it's, a, it's wonderful. It's, so there's a host of new characters. Uh, all our hardy perennials are still there, albeit played to that wonderful trope of, you know, ones who were old in the first place are suddenly looking like middle-aged men playing teenagers. Uh, the guy that plays Miguel is certainly starting to look as though he needs to go on a road trip and indeed does by the end of it. But with a with with a soundtrack of the worst in an American kind of soft metal, it is not to be missed. Cobra Kai. Wonderful. Brilliant. Andrew. What's I loved your... it as well. <laughs> I loved it. It's a very good great choice. Okay. I'm gonna check it out. Andrew, what's yours? It's the greatest week of the year because <laughs> uh, out of nowhere mm. comes the announcement that there's a new half man, half biscuit album coming out. This will speak to both Kevin and to Omid as he has a world connection. The album is called The Volterol Years. <laughs> I have to look up what Volterol is. I think I'm going to be needing it pretty soon. And it's, as we know, they, they their song titles alone are an entertainment. Mm. There's one on the new one called Tess of the Dormobiles <laughs> and another one called I'm Getting Buried in the Morning. Hey. Uh, but my favourite little aspect of it is that they're no longer on Pro Plus Records because Jeff from Pro Plus has retired, a well-earned retirement. Mm-hmm. So they've set up their own label and it's called RM Qualtroff Records. And what the hell is that? I googled it. It is a mystery name connected to an unsolved domestic murder yeah. in Wolverton Street, Anfield in 1931. Yeah. So don't say you don't get deep content from Half Man, Half Biscuit. Oh, yeah. This is coming out in uh, February and you can rest assured we'll be talking about it on this programme, <laughs> whether you like it or not. I, I know what your review is already. Omid, what's your closing time chatter? My closing time chatter is that my social media fe- feeds have been absolutely chock full of this young lady can we use the word farts on this? Uh, we certainly can. can. It's uh, uncensored. Yeah. Okay. She. It's uncensored. Okay. Well, she's been selling jars of her farts for a thousand dollars a jar, yes, and apparently she's got ill and she's gone to hospital mm. because the food that she's been eating to make her fart has made her ill. And it's interesting. I had the same idea a few years ago, and unfortunately, unfortunately, it was the only business that I had that, that I followed through. And apparently, <laughs> apparently, jars of my own shit are not as popular. Oh no! If mm. I could say farts in a bottle. <laughs> so that's the story. That's all over my timeline. All of yesterday, and today. Yeah, goodness me! Beautiful stuff. 
Thank you. Greatest, Sean, greatest B side of all time. Life's a <laughs> gas. <laughs> Sean, what's yours? Oh, I'm continuing this Liverpool theme, I feel. Grain Chill the movie. Yay! <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Phil Redman has finished the script, apparently. It's due in late 2022, which seems a bit fast. Um, but maybe maybe it will be done. Really, and, and the, I mean, just look it up. I can't say any more than how excited I am about this. The original characters will apparently be playing the grandparents of the young characters who are at school. It's, just, this is, it's Cobra Kai. This is it, Kev. <laughs> this is it. Cobra Kai, they realise, Netflix and all these people realise... That was Cobra Kai was on YouTube only, and then Netflix bought it because they realized people in their 50s who watched the film in 84 were going bananas. So Phil Redman understands that yep. this is our generation. It's the people in their 50s who remember Grange Hill. That is the big, yeah. that's the, the, he knows. We're, we're the big people who watch everything. He's not a silly man. He also, there's a great um, feature in The Guardian, if you do want to look it up, where he um, talks about what Channel 4 is is for now and what, why does it exist. And I do remember, and I feel a soft spot for what Channel 4 started started as mm. and what it wanted to be and what it is now he's very clever he should be king of all tv i mean he almost is but um i'm so excited about this um it's, it's, january just keeps on giving doesn't it i'm just imagining a gigantic sausage with a fork <laughs> in it flying over britain <laughs> oh that would be wonderful wouldn't it like on the cover of uh, the pink floyd <laughs> yeah, album absolutely. yeah make it happen crowdfund it <laughs> let's do it oh that's the end of the podcast on that sausagey note thank you so much to omid jalili and kevin sampson for being with us and joining us for our first culture bunker of the year thank you yeah thank you enjoy your weekend We've had a wonderful time. Thank you. Take care. Wonderful. It's been wonderful. It's been great having you on. From me, Andrew, producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Sean Pattenden. The assistant producer was Yelena Sofronievich and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Music